Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of QBT. I'm Shawnee. And I'm Maddie Germs. And you know what? We're here like we are every single week to talk about some pop culture, therapy, mental health, and whatever the hell else pops up. We had a great episode for you. One thing that has come up um, in our DMs is, excuse me, ma'ams, but um, what the fuck does QBT stand for? We'll never tell you. No, we will. One I day. mean... One day, maybe, we'll see. I think for me, QBT means anything and everything that you want it to be within the letters QBT. You know, it could be questionably big titties. Could be queer babes talking. Queer babes therapy? Um, queen brain train. A quest for brotherly trust. Queers be tripping. Sometimes queers be terrible. And you know what? Quinceañeras be tight. They're tight as fuck. <laughs> Have you ever been to a quinceañera? They're popping. I love them. I used to work at a mall and then sometimes Keats and Yeras would come through and like parade and take pictures and like that was always really special. They have pretty dresses. <laughs> I always wanted one of those when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Try to talk slick all up in my ear and shit. <laughs> Okay, Shawnee, um, I like to begin our episodes, our sessions together with a little check-in question. What's up, slut? So for today, I think we had talked about in the last episode, we already set ourselves up for success and a little bit of accountability, I think, to try and do the fucking homework, um, was to review a portion or some of our homework. So for a reminder, a refresher, or for our new listeners, um, at the end of every episode, we have a little bit of a homework, something to work on. Last week, Shawnee, you brought up this really beautiful idea of some gratitude journaling. And um, I thought that maybe we could share. Do you want to go first or do you want me to? I'm going to go first. Let's do it because I actually did the homework. I know I didn't do it last week, so I'm making up for it this week. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not going to read all of the things. We were supposed to write down something we're grateful for each day of the week for seven days. I'm not going to read to you seven things. I'm going to pick my top three. First one I'm grateful for is my health. I mean, I'm alive. I'm here. Woo. So I woke up this morning. I'm alive. That was the first thing I wrote down a couple of days ago. Um, And then I am also grateful for my education. You know, education is not something guaranteed to everybody, um, especially in the world. And hey, even in the United States of America. So I'm grateful to have the education that I have because it has afforded me the opportunities that I have. Um, And then the last thing I'm going to share that I'm grateful for is my mom. I talk about her a lot. You guys hear me mention her all the time. Mother's Day just passed, but shout out to Angela. She, uh, She has been very instrumental in my upbringing as a single mother and making sure that I turned out a okay. And girl, you did a fantastic job. So I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for your mom too. Um, How about you? What'd you write down? What you got? Well, as I'm sitting here looking at this, I'm like, I don't want to read all these. Um, (laughs) I actually, this prompted me. I've had this journal that someone gave me um, for like, six months or something just unopened and I was like oh I finally have a reason to open this notebook um 
And I am honestly, I think I might have said this, this practice is hard for me, like the act of physically writing is hard for me. And so I was grateful to get the opportunity to like try something that was sort of hard for me. I was not able to journal every day. But what I did do was sit down and I took about an hour and just kind of I did some readings, Spencer and was like doing some watercolors and we just had music on and I just like <gasps> sat down and Oh, nice. Yeah, it was cute. So um some things that I'm grateful for um, or trying to cultivate gratitude around are my body and the way that it's changing in quarantine. And um, that's always been something that has been hard in some ways for me. So I'm really trying to take some thankfulness around being alive and breathing and the new curves and stretches that are happening um, and really try and fall in love with it. I'm grateful for long walks and we got our bikes fixed. So we went on a really beautiful bike ride and I just I was grateful for that moment. And then I was grateful for like the sweat at the small of my back that was pooling. And I was like, I feel alive. <laughs> like it, it reminded me that I am capable of stuff, which is a really simple thing. You know, it's a fucking bike, Maddie, get over it. But it, uh, in the moment I was very grateful. And then I'm actually going to talk a little bit about my experience with Mother's Day in the meds section, but I, I was experiencing a lot of gratitude for folks that have taken care of me. Mother's Day doesn't always have to be um, about biological folks, right? I think in our chosen family and in throughout our life, there are people who offer really beautiful um, examples of care. And I was just taking some moments to write down and think about some of those things. So I am really glad about this practice. I'm gonna try and do it, make it a, a weekly thing if I can. Um, Cause I, I think gonna be... ask, how are you feeling about it? And did you like it? But it seems like you got something out of it. Yeah, and if anything, what I get out of it is an opportunity to think about these things, right? Like I still have some hesitation. There, there's something weird for me around like the permanency of writing something down. It feels, feels strange to me and maybe that's something I need to work with my therapist about but like um, I am excited to have more opportunities to practice gratitude especially when it can feel kind of hard right now absolutely and we're gonna get into some we're gonna get into even more journaling exercises you know as this podcast goes on yeah and I'm gonna work with you on this permanence thing there's something magical about gratitude journals about journaling in general and being able to go back and look at what you wrote um, whether that's chuckling at yourself or just realizing, you know, the serious shit you were going through at the time. I love to go look at my, I've been writing since I was like 10. So mm -hmm. I will go back and look at journals sometimes when I was going through my emo phases in like high school or in college when I was just like, the world hates me. Yeah. Um, and it's just nice to see the kind of growth and change that happens. Or sometimes like, hey, I still have these feelings. Maybe I should yeah. talk to somebody about this. <laughs> and maybe, maybe that's like, I think for me, it's like the cringe factor. It's like I did write journals when I was younger. And then I remember finding them later. And I was like, this is so embarrassing to read. Like, it like hurts my spirit that I was this person. <laughs> and I can totally see the benefit. And like, maybe that's like, you know, a later adulthood thing, finding joy in that versus finding yeah. like, oh my God, how was I that person? <laughs> Do you want to talk about um, some pop culture and politics, mama? Fuck yeah. All right. Um... <clears throat> I'm gonna go ahead and start this off. I think it's the show we're all talking about. It's the show we're all obsessed with, Hollywood on Netflix. Mm, come on, Ryan Murphy. <laughs> I'm joking, that's not the show we're all obsessed with. It's Insecure, but we'll get to that in a second. There we go. I wanna talk about Hollywood because I have mixed feelings about this show. I think it is a very Ryan Murphy show. 
if you haven't seen it, it is essentially Hollywood back in its golden age, back in 19, I don't know, 40s, 30s, 40s, yeah. 30s, sounds like a time when they didn't like Black people, so I don't know. Right. Um, and they let that be known on this show as well. I have some issues with some of the characters, namely the the main, not the main character. Well, I have an issue with the main character because he looks like Henry Seville's fucking little brother, which is Henry, Henry Seville is the guy that plays Superman, the most recent Superman. They look like they could be like, related. I always read it Cavill. Oh, it might be that. I might be saying it wrong. I don't know. I know he's handsome. I haven't watched yeah. those movies though. He is very handsome. That's a great word of putting, a great way of putting it. Um, yeah. But Ryan Murphy has like a history of casting like the same. They all look the same. And they're all named Matt. Like, <laughs> I, we should look it up. I guarantee you this guy's name is Matt. Anyways, that's that guy. He's straight. Don't care. There's a um, Black gay character who wants to be a screenwriter. He's hot. And he's hot. And I was actually really excited for him and his storyline until that storyline was essentially about him being a prostitute for white people. And then I found that there's just issues I have with that. So... Mm. Um, the show itself, though, is, I mean, if you want to see a lot of full frontal male nudity, and I mean, maybe not a lot, but more than you're probably used to seeing. A um, handful. A handful. An episode here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, watch it. It's there. Um, it's not really sexualized that much. Yeah, for a show that's about, like, ho- the secret gay life of Hollywood and the kind of, like, sexualization of these kids as they come into Hollywood and the exploitation there. It isn't that sex-focused. It's a really weird thing. I've also only seen, I think, two or three episodes, Mm -hmm. and there's something weird about revisionist history. It's, like, it's, like, fun in some ways, and then it also is strange because of, like, what's... Uh, there's sadness there, right? Like that yeah. isn't what happened. Like, and it, it's nice to sort of give these people their flowers after they're gone. And it's still sad that Rock Hudson had to be in the closet. It's still sad that, yeah. um, uh, fuck me, that um, Asian American actress who didn't get her shit. Oh, like, fuck. Um, her name? that's really embarrassing. We that is embarrassing. Sorry, y'all. Um, we'll find it later. But um, I just. I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it. And I definitely have mixed feelings about Ryan Murphy. And at the same time, the show so far has not been the worst. Like, I don't know. I am interested to see more. I don't have the bingey thing with it. I feel like I'll watch mm-hmm. like once a one a week or whenever, like whenever it kind of comes across. But Queen Latifah is in it. I love that. And I haven't gotten to her yet. I like that Darren Chris is playing a straight person this yeah, time. Yeah, finally. Thank yeah. God. I like the, I like the, I see what Ryan Murphy is going for. I, and you know what? Kudos to him for going for it. He doesn't execute it very well. I think that there's way more that they could have explored um, in regards to that revisionist history and what yeah. would have happened if, the whole premise of the show is like, they're trying to produce a movie. What happens if, you know, back in the 1930s, 40s, you let a black woman essentially play the lead versus a white woman, which, you know, back then Hattie McDaniel was the, the talk around town. She was the black actress. She got the first, she was the first black actress, first black anybody to get an Oscar, I believe. Her so, name is Anime Wong, by the way. Anime Wong. There we go. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I, there's a lot of work. There's a lot of things that they could have done. It feel it's entertaining. Don't get me wrong. Like it's a, it's a fun thing to just watch, you know, there's not too much heaviness to it. I don't believe. So it makes it fun in that, in that respect, but I don't know. I was kind of neither here nor there about it. I just wanted to talk about it because a lot of people 
are talking about it and yeah. I don't think I'm as in love with it as some people are. I'm also not like a Ryan Murphy like stan. I feel like yeah. he's done a couple of things really well. Um and I think well, a friend of ours Oh, go ahead. I was I mean that's the thing is that he always does a couple of things really well. Like there's always a few things about everything that he creates that are really cool or really interesting or really gross or really fun. And then the rest of it is just like what is going on? <laughs> right. I don't know. It's it's fun stuff. I was expecting more. And I think a friend of ours put it this way. He's been doing this stuff on FX in this partnership with Fox for so long where it's broadcast television or even if it's cable, you know, your hands are so sort of tied with how much you can push the envelope. Mm -hmm. And I believe that, you know, <clears throat> he signed this deal with Netflix and it's like, yo, the Pandora's box is open. Do whatever you want. Like, yeah. you can get as wild and crazy as you want on Netflix, mm -hmm. technically, right? It can be TV, MA, triple X. I don't know, maybe. Yeah. Um, and it don't. It doesn't feel like he he went there in a lot of ways that he could have. Not to say that I just wanted like gay porn on my television. We have porn uh, porn up for that, but we could have got really close to that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I will watch more. I I'm not like. I love that Janet Mock is has a big directing influence there. Oh, yeah. oh also Pose is um, the season two, if you didn't get to watch it, is coming back um, on Netflix, I think in... Soon. Soon, yeah. So yeah. if you didn't get to see it, I think I only was able to like illegally stream the first few episodes. So I'm excited for it to come out. Don't tell um, people that. <laughs> I love stealing. Um, <laughs> let's talk about Insecure because... So good. This yeah. show does such an amazing job at just like pinpointing the anxieties of when it first started, you're like late 20s going into your third. I don't know. There's something about this show that's just like, I identify with so many of the characters, but this season specifically, yo, this Molly Issa it friendship, it hurts. And it's crazy because it's like, you feel that for your own friendships. Like you've been there before with friends, right? It's... And it sucks. It tends to go like this. I think that if you... I, I mean, mean, should we just do it? Like, We should do it. Team Issa Spoiler or alert. Team Molly? Oh, I'm Team... I'm actually Team Issa right now, I think. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, think, I think she... The thing that pissed me off so much was... We said we weren't going to give a spoiler alert, by the way, so we're not. Um, yeah, so far we've seen up to the block party, which is a really cool episode, and we see Issa in her element. The thing that made me mad about her was that even though she was working... Even though everything was stressful, she has not made a concerted effort in weeks to mm. follow up on a conversation that her that Molly was adult enough to say, I would like this conversation with you. Like, like Molly said, we need to talk. You know, you're my friend. We need to talk. We need to sort this out. And Issa's the one who has this like avoidant behavior a lot mm. of times. That's one of her coping mechanisms, you know. And I am totally on her side that I think Molly is really flipped out. Uh, for no reason, honestly. Like, I, I don't think that she had the right to do what she did. And I think it would have been really, 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 really simple for Issa to look her in the eye and be like, we need to talk. I'm working right now. I'm My head's all over the place. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. That takes seven seconds to say. To say. There, mm -hmm. There's no reason for her to have... The way she accepted the cauliflower or like the wings or whatever, I call, I call it flower wings. That's why I said that. Very um, Portland of you. <laughs> uh, delete. I'm so sorry, guys. Um, the way she like took those and looked at them, like it was such a perfect opportunity to be like, thank you. We do need to talk. And the way that she 
walked away from it. And I've been in similar situations before, right? Like you're either at a fundraiser or like nightlife stuff or whatever. Some people come up to you, they just want to talk to you. Sometimes you have weird shit going on with people, but you're still glad to see them. And of course you're not going to hash it out on the dance floor. Yeah, but that's not like some, like, that's like some housewife shit. Like if it's my event and I'm in charge of, literally it's my event. I'm in charge of every aspect of this. Now is not the time no. to bring up, right? Like if you're doing that, it's just, it's dramatic. Like, I don't know why you're choosing now. And even if you are feeling whatever feelings you're having, like, we can we can still validate those feelings at a later time. We don't have to do it right now in the middle of my event. And that, right. me, from Molly, just felt, like, that feels selfish and you took something away from Issa, who has been busting her ass to get this mm-hmm. block party pulled off. And at the very end, like, you were doing so good, girl. Like, you were doing so good. And then you, at the very last second, lost it. And lost it over something that, the way I look at it, Issa was being resourceful. Molly, and you she told was being her... respectful. And respectful. You told her, Molly, that she couldn't go through you to get to your man to get this artist for this block party. And... Hey, if it was me and, yo, Maddie, if you were like, you can't go through me to get to Spencer, to get to somebody for your thing. You'll text Spencer. Bet. I'm just going to text Spencer. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, we're friends. But let's say we <laughs> or were whoever, saying, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to hit up somebody else that knows, you know, your partner to get right. that done. And I'm not going to feel bad about it because you closed that door for me. And that for me just shows that like Molly clearly... It's a bigger issue with how she feels about that friendship and yeah. what she feels like her role is and responsibility is in yeah. that friendship. You know, like she clearly looks at herself as I'm the one that has my shit together and like you don't and I don't appreciate you using me to get your shit together. When mm-hmm. it's like Issa's been getting her shit together this whole season, like mm-hmm. in a very great way. I'm actually, aside I mean, from the she's Lawrence, still really uh, bad at like, running that apartment complex yeah yeah, yeah. But she's still bad at her job she like, is <laughs> but she's i'm appreciating maybe this is just like the show running and how the story is being told i appreciate that at least for this season the focus doesn't seem to be on isa and a man it's like isa and her event and yes lawrence has been around but there hasn't been like a direct like isa's life is all about lawrence right now mm-hmm. so it's nice to see that and then it's annoying to see on this most recent episode molly kind of blow up on Issa about this and it's like yo Issa's actually making really positive steps towards like herself and your man told you to chill too like was involved in it and was like I think that maybe this person is just obviously poorly managing what the come up feels like like Mm -hmm. I totally empathize with Issa in like when you start to get your shit together the social priorities sometimes don't become priorities. And then that is an adjustment for everyone you love and care about. When you finally get to a point where you can relax, then you can totally go back to those friendships and be like, I have not been giving you the energy that you deserve. I'm so sorry. Like at the same time, when they went hiking a couple episodes ago, even if Issa was a little bit kind of asking to ask and really didn't really want to get into a conversation, she still asked how she was doing. And Molly didn't tell the truth. Molly's sitting there holding all of this resentment and anger that she's not here for her and hasn't let her know there's stuff to be here for her about, you know? It's sad because it almost feels like you start to see the cracks from the previous episodes or previous seasons where it's almost like they don't really support each other as friends, right? And I, I forgot who I was talking to, but it's like Molly has grown as a person 
<clears throat> and Issa is still seeing her as the Molly from season one. And that happens in our friendships every day and vice versa. Molly still sees Issa as Issa from season one, not Issa who's grown and been through some shit now mm-hmm. and is making better decisions. Yeah. And that happens to all of us, right? We, we box our friends into this thing from when we first meet them or from, or from some particular incident and we let that define who they are and then when they grow beyond that we still try to rein them back into that place right Mm -hmm. and I know that I went through this you know just candidly in New York I was very much so like I want to go to every party I want to go to every rave I want to go out every single day if I can Mm -hmm. you know and I you know me Maddie I am not like that at all anymore I'm like please leave me alone but I still have friends that think of me as like party Sean and think of me as like you like chilling out nah you're joking or you know and I I get that how hard that is but for me it's like having supportive friends that see that growth and understand it and are working with you on it versus stay in this box that I like met you in and stay there because that's how that fits into my life and that's how I can compartmentalize it you know we're given this other example of confrontation with Issa and uh Contessa, what was that woman's name that's like helping her with the block party? Condola. It's a very interesting name, but Condola. Condola, thank you. And, you know, Issa could have done what Molly did, right? Like she could have, she had reasons to be angry about, or angry with um, Condola. And instead she just was like, I'm glad you're here. You good? And And they were like, both acknowledge, we have stuff to do today. Obviously it's not great, but like, I don't hate you as a person, you know, like that's all that needed to happen. Do you feel like Lawrence and Issa are going to get back together? Absolutely. That's going to happen. Yeah. I think it'll, if it doesn't happen at the end of this season, it's going to be the storyline for next season. I feel like unfortunately Issa has like two more seasons left, maybe three before they like have to wrap the whole thing up. I think Issa, Issa Rae, like real person, Mm -hmm. I feel like she like has to do that to unite the fandom that hates two different groups yeah. of, like like i i don't think she really has a choice and i i don't think it's that doesn't upset me at all i think i am often a little bit rolly eyed annoyed at shows that kind of have a central love interest that like breaks up and then they go do all this learning and they come yeah. back together but I, this feels kind of natural to me they have like actual like wasn't there a season where he was like barely there like yeah there was a whole season where he wasn't there at all i think it was the coachella that coachella episode like he didn't show up until the very last episode which like that's what happens in real life you spend a year never seeing someone again yes yes yeah (laughs) that's what i love about how honest it is about just real life like you break up with your ex and like yeah you go to coachella and you'll be like fuck i just ran into this person i haven't seen in like whether it's six months or like four years, you run into them at these kind of places and it's like awkward. And then those feelings kind of come back. And last episode where she sent that DM, I was just like, this is literally how it goes. Like I've lived this so many times. Like you're bored, you're in bed and you see that they posted something and you're like, oh, they're up. Let me just Mm -hmm. like hit them up real quick. Yeah. And Um, I mean, it kind of sucks because Nathan's right there. (laughs) <laughs> like he showed up yeah, to the party. I think that she still is just like using Nathan. Like I don't think that that storyline is. I think that's still dead. It might come up to complicate things later, but okay. I I'm gonna bring this up real fast. We don't have to talk about it too much, but it's actually kind of funny. Have you watched America's Next Top Model lately? Oh, I mean, I know that all those videos are getting resurfaced of that and her. Talk it did show. not age well at no. all, and I was even a little bit shocked and surprised about how much she pushed people who had dealt with like sexual trauma or um, 
discrimination and racism how she still pushed them to just like do the things she needed them to do for the show yeah and it's weird that she and i get it the pr you know promo stuff like i get that it's all well that's what you're gonna have to deal with in the real world in this in this industry so like you should do it on this show but it's like girl you were pushing that because you knew ratings right like if a guy is straight up saying he doesn't want to like be in a shoot with somebody because they're black and that person feels uncomfortable because of it like the model the woman feels uncomfortable because of it then don't make her do that that's fucked up if somebody tells you that they like for the first time ever and it's on live television that they were like sexually abused and they have to do this sexy shoot and they're breaking down about it do not force them to do that that's fucked up like the the show definitely like profited off people's live panic attacks like there was i don't know if she had a panic attack but there was that one episode where that girl had lost her friend the day before and then they made her do a photo shoot in a grave yeah in that coffin yeah i mean it the, okay, all of that being said, it's it's inexcusable, it's fucked up. And I do think that there is something a little hmm, fishy slash racist about the fact that, like, Tyra uh, is the one that's being forced to, like, come out and potentially apologize for all this. Like, we aren't going back to that, like, swan... The, do, what was that ugly swan show where people, like, got plastic surgery? Oh, yeah! Like, I the, about that. that realm of reality television, like, if we went... If you go back and you watch, like, everything that happened on, like, Real Chance at Love or I Love New York or all those things, like, there was some really, like, fucked up stuff that was, like, said. Yeah. And... I get that a little bit of the difference is that like that is meant to be screaming, fighting drama. And then Tyra has an opportunity to potentially create a better modeling world than the one that she was offered. I get that. And the time of reality television was disgusting across the board. And there is something a little fishy about like, I mean, the thing that makes it funny is that, like, she's just a weird narcissist, you know? Like, we always got this narrative that Naomi Campbell was the big narcissist when it's fucking Tyra. Like, Tyra's weird, yo. Like, I was watching a Watch What Happens Live with her and um, Eva, who used to be on America's Next Top Model and is now on Real Housewives of Atlanta. Oh, right, right, right. And that whole time I was like, I... I haven't seen Tyra Banks, I think, in a while. I know she had that baby. I don't think, I think she, had, I don't know if she adopted or had a surrogate, but I know she has a baby now. Um, and it was just weird because I was like, Tyra Banks is, I don't know. I don't know if it's that thing that Hollywood just does to you, but like something was just a little off about that whole thing. And I was like, I don't know. Tyra Banks has been put through the ringer with Hollywood and she clearly is coming out on the other end, like a little off from how she started. Um, I think the thing that bothered me the most about that American America's next top, top model stuff was um, there's a scene where there was a woman who, was is gay um and she hadn't come out yet or maybe she had and she wanted to just like express gay pride and the fact that she was a lesbian and like that's what she is and she was very like adamant about it entire banks shut that shit down she was straight up like nope no gay pride stuff and then this is what baffled me Tyra Banks herself was like, I mean, I'm black and I'm a model, but you don't see me running around talking about black this, black that, blah, 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 blah. blah. And I don't know what accent thing she put on when she said that, but I was like, yo, girl, like your mind has been warped a little because like you are telling somebody else who is very much so like a minority, somebody else who has their own struggles as well, belonging to this country that doesn't respect them, to stop taking pride in who they are and to essentially shut up and like assimilate. And that's 
weird. Like <laughs> coming yes. from a black model who paved the way for other black models. I mean, name them. There's Naomi Campbell. There's fucking Tyra Banks. Name another one. For real, I'll sit here and wait. <laughs> oh, Ducky, she's hot. Um, Ducky. Oh, Ducky yeah. thought. Um, Rihanna. Um, anyway. <laughs> Uh, no, I, she has definitely some weird colorism stuff, and there was definitely yeah. a lot of, like, that, you know, quote, like, ghetto talking, you know, like, any AAVE, she was, like, trying to coach it out of them, you know, like, yeah. it was fucked up, and, and, but there's also, like, recent videos, too, where, like, she did some, like, complex interview or something, where she, like, does not sing correctly a Beyonce verse, it, she sings this Beyonce verse about like hot sauce in my bag or whatever, but she sings it like a white woman who heard her children listening to it once. It's weird. It's oh my weird. God. I just want to come out as very pro Naomi Campbell. <laughs> so I, like, well, that's what I want to come out as. <laughs> I'm very pro Naomi Campbell and very anti um, Tyra Banks right now. Yeah. So let's move on real quick. Um, I want to bring up SNL at home just because it's interesting. I watch SNL. I have been watching it for a very long time of my life. It's not, um, sometimes it's not great. Sometimes it is. You know, there's some nuggets here and there. I really appreciate that they have brought on a gay Asian, like, male as, like, I a I love Bo and Yang. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoy the increase in just, like, Black people on the show. <clears throat> and I think that it's creating a lot of great content. Um, and one of the things, Michael Shea, he's on Weekend Update. He's also one of the writers for the show. I know he's been through some backlash for a few things he said, but fuck it. I like Michael Shea. I think that the backlash he goes through is just him keeping it real. And people always have backlash for people keeping it real. Yeah. Um, on this most recent episode of SNL, I think it was the season finale that they did. Um, they're doing all this stuff from home. So, like, they're just recording stuff themselves and sending it in. And I'm sure producers are, like, sending them props and things like that. But it's just been interesting. Michael Shea did a weekend update, as he always does. Um, he had a segment about just... <laughs> about the pandemic and about everything else going on in the world. And each time he showed up on camera, he had, like, another drink in his hand. And I just thought it was hilarious because he wasn't just talking about the pandemic. He was just like the pandemic. And then this thing came up was like murder hornets. Like, so you mean to tell me I have to deal with this and also murder hornets? And the next thing that came up was the Ahmad Arbery shooting and him just being like, so I got to deal with a pandemic, murder hornets, and I could just die for being black. And at that point he was just like, quote unquote, like drunk. And I don't know. I fucking felt that shit, yo. Like that is how it feels. I'm like, in, on top of everything else just going on in the world, I also have to, like, be worried and constantly aware of the color of my skin. And I have to be aware of that in the sense of, oh, what did he say? The pandemic is murdering us. Mm. And then you have cops murdering us, too. It's just like we're just being murdered these days, like, in the streets, like, openly. And people are okay with it. Not that I'm surprised, just... I think I talked about this last week. It's just, I'm a little exhausted at this sure. point. You know, it's... I mean, the fucked up stuff about some of the stuff that has come up recently with Ahmad and Brianna, like, they happened months ago. Yeah. Like, those things happened two months ago. And where they lived, people didn't give a shit, except for the people who did. And that, unfortunately, takes time to trickle out and build a movement around. That two months later, we're seeing some semblance of justice, you know? But, I mean, it's not real justice. Real justice with them still being alive you know yeah these are just a few names there are 
the sad part is that me keeping up with every black person who is murdered by police is the list is I can't keep up with the list. Yeah. And that's sad. Like I it shouldn't be such a massive list that right. I can't even remember everybody's name if you were to put me on the spot right now. Right. Or we shouldn't worry about recording on Thursday how many people will die between the time it comes out, right? <laughs> yeah. In terms of this week, I or at least since the last recording, Ahmad Arbery, Sean Reed, Brianna Taylor, um, all three Black people that were shot for senseless reasons. You know, I know there's still evidence. Um, people have to, like, figure out what happened, whatever. At the end of the day, all I know is that three of my people were killed, and there's no immediate response or reason as to why that happened. Ahmad Arbery just running around, right? I don't care if he was on a construction site. I don't care if he was just, like, scoping some stuff out doesn't mean you need to be murdered for it. Sean Reed, just (laughs) that Facebook Live video, and I haven't watched it. I've just heard about it because I refuse to watch Black Murders like on my computer screen. Yeah. silly. And if you're doing that, please don't. Sean Reed being murdered on Facebook Live and to hear those cops just saying those words about like, they're going to need a closed casket for this. It's just... (sighs) The act of doing something and then getting caught and it's still not being that you're remorseful for the act that you did, you're remorseful because you got caught doing it. And that's the thing with Ahmad, with Ahmad, with Sean, like both of them, it's, I don't give two shits about what these white people's excuses are, the reason, whatever, because anything you have to say is a lie you're telling yourself to get yourself out of trouble because you got caught. You're not mad that you murdered somebody. You're sad you murdered a human being. You're mad, you're sad because you got caught and Mm -hmm. you're, Mad and sad because you got caught in an era where we're recording everything, people. <laughs> like, just stop doing dumb shit. Like, just stop. Like, yeah. it's not that hard. It's not, it's just, it's not that difficult. And then Brianna Taylor, to be somebody who's an EMT out here saving people's lives. Like, saving your lives. Saving your white lives. And still, just in her bed, in the middle of the night police breaking it down and killing her. And I don't care if her partner, boyfriend, whoever had a gun. Like, dude, if somebody kicked down my door and if I had a gun, I'm gonna grab it too. Like, I don't care, right? They had and a search for it for someone who wasn't even in the home. And wasn't even in the home and had already been arrested. So it's mm-hmm. like, again, there was no excuse you can offer me. And she had eight shots in her. Sean Reed had 12, I believe. Like, there's no reason that that number of bullets need to be in any human being that isn't resisting or fighting back for anything. I mean, we talked about this last week, but like white people get to do whatever the fuck they want to the police, you know, to some extent, they always get the given the benefit of the doubt of you're not going to harm me. And so as we're seeing more and more videos of white people not being murdered by police for doing many of the same things, if not worse things, it's obvious that this is a race issue, not just a policing issue. And if every fucking police is scared of black people, don't let them be police. Like, if that's the case, they shouldn't be fucking police. It's part of the fucking job. Like, when you sign up, hey, I don't know who needs to hear this, and if you're listening, if you sign up to be a firefighter or to be a cop or to be anything that has risk associated with it, it is not your job's, like, responsibility to, like, make sure you're safe in every single, like, you're signing up for a risky job off the jump. If you're a firefighter, you sign up for the job. You have to run the risk of, I might die in a fire, and I can't be mad at somebody else because of that. I'm choosing this career. If you're signing up to be a police officer, you don't get to say, well, I was afraid. You're a fucking cop. You're, right. yeah, you, if you're a cop, you don't get to say you were afraid of anything, like, 
you we're expecting you as police officers to not be afraid and go in and actually like fix the situation so right. if that's the excuse you're going to use and i'm not saying that that's actually what the that's in a, a reason somebody should be shot and killed i'm just like playing devil's advocate here if you're going to tell me that's a thing that took you to such a level that you needed to kill somebody is that you were afraid then you probably shouldn't be a cop dude right. like it's just that simple if you're afraid for your life then pick a safer career and like you're just not going to convince me that there is any other reason that you like that that doesn't make sense right like you can talk to me about economy, about money, about legacy of being a cop, whatever. Don't give a shit. Don't be a cop if you are afraid of that actual job. It's that fucking simple. You don't see me out here choosing to like, and I respect veterans and those of us who are serving in the military. I don't want to be in the military because I don't want to get sent overseas or have to go do some shit that I'm not like ready to do with my head. So I wouldn't sign up to do that. It's just that simple. And if that yeah. means I have to suffer elsewhere, I'll fucking figure it out because I don't feel comfortable murdering somebody else or having to like go through basic training, right? It's just even that simple. I just don't want to go through basic training. So I don't want to be in the military. <laughs> I mean, fuck cops. And honestly, fuck the military too. Both of those are the largest ter terrorist organizations in mm -hmm. internationally and then within the United States. And the police system was literally as we know it was literally built to catch slaves so like the history is not that far from the present you know what i mean um yeah. shit's fucked up fuck cops and um there's this weird thing with the video aspect of all this too right and i mean i appreciate you saying like don't fucking watch this shit because i can totally understand when it all when it all um when there was more of this like social consciousness happening around the police brutality of black people especially for white communities right like need, needing to be shown what was happening i mean that happened in the 60s it wasn't until there was that televised event that sort of like led to some of the march uh the marchers joining or whatever because they saw it with their own eyes which is like fucked up you shouldn't have to have seen it to believe it i guess but there is some maybe argument for why we were sharing these viral videos about this earlier and now it just seems like the postcards that those people had uh, during uh, post-slavery with the lynchings where they would like, white people would send out greeting cards of lynchings. Like it's basically these videos for black people, it incites terror. And then for white people who are racists, it's like, look what we can get the fuck away with. It's like a calling card, you know? It's like, I think at this point, the purpose is questionable. And I agree with you that we should stop sharing and start, stop watching in the way yeah. that we have previously when we're like demanding justice like i think that there is i don't know like i i think that those things should be seen or maybe accessed if if there's a desire to but the fact that the video goes viral is like disgusting yeah i i hate it it's just it's exhausting it's again like waking up every day and having to i talked about this last week i'm a runner right like i go out and running all the time and now i have to sit here and be aware about that even it's like yo can i do anything can i do can i just live can i literally just wake up and live my day without having to live in constant fear of somebody just thinking something's wrong and murdering me and i don't care about the sorry that comes after that because I'm dead, you know, like you've taken a life now. Nobody cares if you're sorry. Nobody cares that you feel bad that you did something. Like get this shit out of my face. Like my people are dying left and right, even during a pandemic. And it's like, 
we're still not doing anything about it. You know, like it's it's just it's it's exhausting. I can't keep coming back to that word. I just wish there was another word to explain yeah. what my existence is every day that I wake up, which is beyond exhausting, beyond tired, beyond weary. It's like it's numbing. It's numbing to the point that I mean, I heard about Brianna Taylor maybe yesterday, day before. And was just, could didn't even have it in me emotionally. It was just like, I'm good. Like, I, sure, you know, and now I feel bad because I, I can't even cry for this woman right. because I've cried for two other people already and I don't even have it in me anymore because, like, it's just, I'm that tired right now. Yeah. That's what community's about, right? Like, when we get exhausted, we rely on other people to be angry for us. Or when we feel exhausted, we rely on other people to scream for us. Or when we feel exhausted, we rely on other people to listen to us say we're exhausted, you know? Yeah. And I appreciate y'all listening to me vent about all of that. Um, we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk a little bit about coping mechanisms because I have been through it this fucking week and I just want to share a little bit about what's been getting me through. Um, I want to hear what Maddie's been doing to get through and at some point I want to hear from y'all too. So we'll take a quick break and come back. All right. And we are back to talk a little bit about coping. Are you ready? Yeah, as I sip my tequila. <laughs> That's one way of doing it. Do you know what a coping mechanism is? Yeah, I mean, are you asking me or the listeners? <laughs> um, me. You. <laughs> yeah, I'm in the room. Um, okay. Um, yes, so I will admit that when um, I think about this word, I think that there's sort of this psychological definition, and then there's this kind of social colloquial definition of coping mechanism that I think often kind of gets misconstrued a little bit with defense mechanisms or kind of an, another thing. The way I understand coping mechanisms, and this is actually a definition that I found today that I felt summed up my understanding, which is coping refers to cognitive and behavioral strategies that people use to deal with stressful situations or difficult demands, whether they are internal or external. So it's the brain's way of offering us some relief from scary shit. Nice way of putting it. Yeah, I was going to say, let's break that down, but that's pretty much it. I mean, cognitive and behavioral strategies, for me, is a fancy way of saying how you act and what you think. Mm -hmm to uh, get you through really stressful circumstances right. and things that you're going through. And then the um, internal and external kind of comes from like, external would obviously be, uh, my wife died. I am failing every class I'm in. There's mm -hmm. a pandemic outside. The stuff we were just talking about. And then internal can be things like, I'm someone who suffers from major depressive disorder or like I'm someone mm -hmm. who is deeply anxious all the time like those are things that are internal struggles that then our brain figures out ways to keep on keeping on yeah which <clears throat> i think is an interesting thing that the brain does because it's both involuntary and voluntary you mm -hmm. know it's both unconscious and conscious the coping mechanisms that a lot of us do tend to use and i'm really happy that you brought up the difference between a coping mechanism and a defense mechanism. Mm -hmm. You know, a, a defense mechanism is a little bit more about being protective and like protecting your ego more so than a coping mechanism, which is meant to deal with, again, those internal external stressors and triggers that you go through just in your day to day. So that's the clear definition for me. I think that 
do people do use it interchangeably? Um, well, it's hard because unhealthy coping mechanisms can be defense mechanisms, which makes that kind yeah. of cross hairs confusing. But what are some ways that you cope? Mm, so many ways. <laughs> uh, me personally, I cope using and doing a lot of exercise, a lot of nature, um, a lot of, as you guys probably know now, meditation and just mindfulness has really been helpful for me lately. Um, I say those are my biggest ones. You know, I journal here and there. I think that's a coping mechanism. I, um, shit, playing with blue sometimes is a coping mechanism because mm -hmm. it, you know, gets my mind off of things. Um, and then I have the... <laughs> Some of the unhealthier ones, which, you know, drinking, smoking weed, um, those two things. <laughs> yeah. Going, I like surrounding myself with distractions, whether that's more work or going out to hang out with friends or um, just putting more on my plate, whether that's just like passion projects and whatnot, but which I think can be healthy. You know, I think the difference between healthy and unhealthy is just moderation and how much you're indulging in one thing over the other but yeah. those are probably my go-tos definitely number ones let me just i'll sum it up number ones exercise um journaling meditation drinking and weed wow um sometimes i'm amazed by you because you're able to have such a clear focus of who you are and what you do that it like throws me off sometimes because I'm like being I an only child would do that shit to you okay work <laughs> <laughs> well as the eldest child I felt like even though I was a brat I also was always like so concerned with like the responsibility of other people that sometimes I forgot to care about myself but um for me I feel like something that's been pretty consistent throughout my life is humor I mean I have mm. I often err on the side of a joke and, you know, I mean, a couple episodes ago, I was talking about how that was inappropriate, the way that I aired on a side of a joke, you know, like, sometimes that could be a healthy thing where I am doing that thing of what's, what's called like a, like a cognitive conversion mechanism. I'm like looking at something bad, and I'm changing the way I think about it by mm -hmm. making light of it or taking the air out of it or something. But then it can also change into this maladaptive like attack mechanism where I'm like trying to externalize my problem with a quote joke, you know, but like at the root of it, it's humor as a deflector kind of. Um, I would also say nature is a, and that's sort of tied to exercise. I'm, I'm not, I've never been the sportiest person. I feel like in my adult life, I am recognizing like, oh, I didn't really hate sports as much as I hate competition. Like I, uh, I, I actually yeah. like, I don't mind being active. I don't mind using my body. I don't mind sweating. I hate like, why do I have to be faster than that person? Or why do I have to hit more balls than that person? I just, can I just be? Um, being outside and I was thinking about how reflective coping mechanisms can be trying to change something into wisdom. So like change, taking a shitty situation and being like, what can I learn from this? That's like a reframing. And I think nature is a way for me to reframe like spirituality for me, which has done me a lot of harm in my understanding of spirituality or religion. And then mm -hmm. communing with nature and changing that in my brain is, is a form of coping mechanism in my head. Obviously drinking. I mean, I think that it's a weird thing to talk about coping mechanisms sometimes because like you said 
especially in a psychological standpoint, there's so many lists of things that are written as like, this is a maladaptive, this is not healthy. When that thing isn't inherently bad or good, it's how you use that thing that then be can become this negative self-abuse behavior, right? Like, yeah. um, and I think it's also interesting because like, I think self-harm comes up as a really, I used that as a coping mechanism when I was a teenager, you know, like I had crazy body dysmorphia i also had a coping mechanism of like controlling food because i was like i can't control anything else in my life so i'm going to control what the fuck is going in and out of my body you know mm -hmm. and then i also was like not happy with the way it was changing so i was like like i have these um natural like stretch marks from when i went from like a husky child to like a bigger teen and i was like so upset with them that in order to try and control the situation and cope with the situation, I would like cut myself over the stretch mark thinking that I was like mm -hmm. creating myself in some way. Like uh, I'm not saying it as rational. I'm just saying what happened. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what am I trying to say this for besides being embarrassing and vulnerable? Um, I think uh, what I'm saying is coping mechanisms have changed throughout my life. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And I think the thing about coping mechanisms <clears throat> and the sheer fact that they are strategies that people use, you know, to deal with whatever they're going through, it's very, when I think of strategies and I think about um, the situation itself, a lot of it is also outcome-based. So what is the coping mechanism? What is the technique? What is the strategy you're using? And what is your intended hopeful outcome? Yeah. Which I think is something that, and don't get me wrong, this isn't something that I've mastered or like, you know, every time I indulge in, let's say, weed or alcohol or even just journaling, right? Like that I'm concentrating on the outcome of that. You know, I'm more so just like, I need to do this thing right now so that I can feel better, like mm -hmm. about whatever's actually happening. Mm -hmm. So I like to think about the outcome as well, because the outcome does dictate a lot about whether that is maladaptive, maladaptive unhealthy, toxic, you know, and all that jazz, right? Like, so drinking is a coping, coping mechanism. No, I won't say it's necessarily bad in every single circumstance, but like, what's the outcome you're going to get from that? Is it, is it actually helping you right. kind of deal with this situation right. at the end of the day? And it's probably not because that's more of a distraction versus something that is productive um, for your mental health. And I think that when you start weighing these, is it healthy? Is it unhealthy? Is it toxic? Is it, you know, good for you? Um, but then I'm thinking about too, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm thinking no, about too, like, um, the way drinking could be a positive thing is like one, one coping mechanism is like venting or ranting, which like in some ways that's kind of like therapy. And also it's like, ideally your friends or your community can hold that space for you. And it can become maladaptive if every time your friends see you, you're taking up too much room with your complaining or whatever, you know, mm -hmm, yeah. but sometimes you need a drink or two to kind of let that tongue loose. And then you expel the negative shit you've been holding on to for three weeks and then yeah. you feel better and that in that case i don't necessarily think drinking is like a negative coping mechanism right it's like a tool for expelling truth you know when, which that, i think you're getting into like how selective and unique coping mechanisms are to each person right yeah. so like that example is <clears throat> maybe somebody who isn't very forthcoming with their emotions and their feelings and their thoughts, right? Like there's plenty of us out there who are pretty closed off to like other human beings. Hi, Almond. Um, <laughs> and 
they might feel the need to drink so that they can be a little bit more forthcoming and be able to share that and vent and get it off their chest and be able to kind of move forward. And in those cases, this is why whether you indulge in drugs, alcohol, whatever, I'm not sitting here judging you. If it is actually helping you in some way, shape, or form, then like, do it. I'm a fan of moderation. Maybe yeah. you should do it every single day, every single hour. But if you're having a really rough day and you don't know how to get yourself out of that bag, out of that thing you're going through, and you feel this need, like, I want to vent so badly and I want to, like, let this out, but I don't know how because that's not what I was taught growing up and I don't understand how to be that way. Hey, if you need to take two shots and hang out with some friends and let that off your chest, I'm not judging you and I'm not looking mm-hmm. at it as like, that's unhealthy of you, right? right? Now, if and you're it, doing that every single time. Right, that's that- what I was just going to say. <laughs> it's about patterns, right? It's about, yeah. it, really, I think, and this is something that for me is what therapy helped unlock for me in a lot of ways was that you named earlier that these things are simultaneously conscious and unconscious. And we talk about more conscious coping mechanisms like exercise or whatever is as like active coping mechanisms. Like I have a goal of moving through a problem or like I have a conflict with a friend. I'm going to actively address that conflict. That's a coping mechanism. I'm going to like address it and move through it. And I'm going to get the skills that I need to address the conflict. And then there's these avoidant conflict or coping mechanisms that kind of pull us away from the problem, distractedness or whatever. All of that to say, I think we're talking about the blurring of those lines that those, like what is active, what is avoidant, what is adaptive, what is maladaptive, what is healthy, what is unhealthy. And to me, it's often about patterns. And like, it can be really, really hard when you have some of those unhealthy things that sometimes we're set in to you hmm. unconsciously unconsciously as a child you know like you have no idea that like when you hear yelling you draw because of that's what happened you were when you were a kid or something you yeah. know like you have no idea that like when you hear a certain song and it like makes you tense up and then you decide to go on a run you have no idea that those things are often connected and like um, maybe those are bad examples but therapy can be this thing that as you tell your story and as you build a narrative to your life and the way you understand your brain and the way you understand your behaviors someone can objectively be like do you see that you send a bad text to this person every time you feel agitated and they didn't do anything to you like do you see how you externalize your pain onto other people in your life and maybe you don't and you're like oh my god I had no idea that like work stress was causing me to be an asshole to my friends but thanks you know and it's not just about externalizing it it's sometimes that inward examination is not developed Mm -hmm. it's a literal skill that has to be developed yeah which is interesting because there are so many cognitive un not unconscious but uh cognitive like brain mindful things that you can do as quote-unquote healthier coping mechanisms that you might not even know because you don't have that awareness right? right like to your point if i don't know that every time something negative happens to me that is related to my self-esteem. I take that information and my way of coping with it is by, which is a healthy one, is by taking that and saying, nope, you're actually the shit. And like, you just are the shit and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Maybe that's your coping mechanism is you just hype yourself up internally, right? Yeah. If there's something you've been doing your entire life and you don't see it any other way, that healthy coping mechanism, quote unquote, could very easily turn into something unhealthy. It can very easily turn into 
into narcissism and like a narcissistic personality disorder because you're not running into anything else, especially if it's in your brain. Like you're not running into anything correcting that for you. Right. So you're just running off with it. And if it's working for you, why change it? That's how mm-hmm. humans work, right? Like we're conditioned to behave and act and think a certain way based on reward or discipline, however you want to put it. And if we're getting constant rewards for internalizing things, for thinking highly of ourselves, if we're getting rewards for drinking, for drug use, for being distracted when we need to be focused on something, then that's just what your brain is going to keep doing. Because our brains at the end of the day are very, very simple and run on a reward system. It's called dopamine. Like it's just that simple. Sometimes the brain is very complicated with its thoughts, but sometimes it's very simple. It's just a dopamine release. And sometimes coping mechanisms are just your brain releasing dopamine so that you can feel better about a situation in that moment versus having to actually sit there and process and deal with it. Yeah. And what you're reminding me of too is something that we can, I think maybe need to dissect on another episode, but is this idea of like that which serves us when we are trying to survive. Like when Mm -hmm. we're experiencing trauma and we're trying to survive, there's our body is really good about being like, let's get through this. Here's what you need to do. You know what? Turn that TV show on. You know what? Eat all the food that you want to eat because you're hungry as shit. Like do that. And then when we actually are better, when the when the thing has been removed, but we still have made a habit out of this thing, that's when that can kind of change. So it's like that which serves us when we're trying to survive is maybe not what's going to serve us when we're thriving. And like, yeah. what are the difference between those behaviors? And, and that's when... Uh, yeah. When we heal from trauma, sometimes our brain forgets stuff on purpose, you know, and like we can forget. Well, disassociation. Yeah. That's there disassociation. You go. That in and of itself is a coping mechanism. You learn to disassociate yourself. Who am I to say whether that's healthy or unhealthy for a person, mm-hmm. right? Like, I don't know that experience. I don't know what they've been through, like as a kid, and whether or not that's helping them or hurting them, right? Like, I think the biggest thing with um, clinical psychology, with us sort of labeling things as toxic or unhealthy, there's always this sort of baseline and this yardstick it has to hit at some point, which is, is this affecting your livelihood? Is it it affecting your ability to like just live your life in a quote unquote societal normal way and if yes then that's something we might we need to like need to examine right? right like if you're indulging in drugs so often that like it's you don't have a job anymore or you haven't talked to your family or friends because that's the only thing you can like your brain goes to when it comes to dealing with a stressful situation that's when it becomes unhealthy and to your right. point it's like it's about that pattern and it's about becoming aware of that pattern as well which Sometimes you need somebody else's help to do, right? Like you need a therapist or you need to learn how to meditate a bit more so you can become aware of when you're feeling that way so you can yeah. like learn to distance yourself from it. Yeah. But And that I yardstick agree- of, oh, I'm sorry, what were you going to say? No, no, I literally was saying I agree with you. All. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think that yardstick that you're talking about too is something that was a big barrier for me to even get into this line of work because I was like, this yardstick is racist. This yardstick is misogynistic. This thing that Mm -hmm. is this quote baseline in all of these textbooks is about white people and about white people of a certain class. And I think that it's um, hopeful 
I find hope in people like you. I know you've left the field, quote unquote, but like you're still here. Um, like other people, some people that I'm in class with and these other things that are like, let's come in here and actually see people as people and make sure that we're measuring them based on what is actually their experience. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I'm going to give an example as opposed to speaking broadly. So I went to a doctor's office um, Shout out to Prism Health, Queer Health, we love you. Um, uh, there was a new person. And so I was like probably trying to get back on prep or something. I don't remember. I went to the doctor's office and he was a new guy. So he was like, hey, I want to do like a intake thing with you. Can you talk to me about your uh, alcohol use and your drug use and sex life and all these things? And basically certain doctors have developed these scales of like X amount of times per week equals risky behavior or, or certain types of sex equal uh, risky behavior. And yes, we can name that these things can just be names, but they also have implications for untrained people. And so mm -hmm. when you offer these like tests about what an amount of drinking looks like or what an amount of drug use looks like, and it's like, well, do you mean to normal people or to like queer people? Because like sometimes yeah. our consumption is different. And, some it's of, different. and, um, and that's like socialized thing. And, and that can be I actually think, you know, we texted about this off camera, but um, I think we do and plan to have a discussion about drugs and addiction and like the relationship to queerness, because like that looks and feels different socially. And then mm -hmm. I think it only speaks to your point more that this shit is so individualized. What works for one person may not work for another. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to talk about was just instilling healthier coping mechanisms. I think we are all aware that we have them, whether or not we know when we're um, actually doing them and executing them or not. But my biggest thing is sometimes we're aware of when we have an unhealthy coping mechanism and we know that we want to change that, but then we face this barrier to doing so. A lot of people understand that like maybe they're drinking too much or maybe they are taking up too much conversation when they're like hanging out with friends or maybe like they are isolating too much to cope with the outside world instead of just like indulging in it. And I think that it's very easy for us to sit here on this podcast and say, just do better. Like, don't do that. Do something yeah. else. And it's it's definitely not that simple. And like, we are mm -hmm. completely empathetic to, to the to the fact that coping mechanisms are things that you learn growing up that become ingrained in you, and they are not something that changes just overnight. And yeah. a great metaphor I learned, or example, I guess, is if you have something. Let's say it's a glass of water, and it's full of toxic things and you pour that out you're left with an empty glass there's nothing there right so if you're thirsty and you want something and all you've been doing is filling that glass with dirty water let's say your brain is literally just going to say like get dirty water again you don't know like you you can't replace that with anything else because you don't even understand what the other thing is that it could be you don't understand what clean water is because you've never had it you've just been drinking dirty water this whole time so which is how therapy can be helpful right there's someone else there that can offer you suggestions and it takes exactly. literal training like it's like a like you're talking about our brains are sometimes simple it's like a fucking dog when you're feeling something you have to actively make choices and say instead of i'm going to 
go on the treadmill until I throw up. Like that's a mix of an unhealthy, healthy thing going on. Like you have to say, yeah. actually, I am going to do this instead, whatever that practice is. And I think that that's why I'm grateful for, you know, your suggestion of doing some journaling and us having like different suggestions every now and then to come back to this journal, because it's a way to help recognize patterns, right? Um, yeah. Therapy is another way to help recognize patterns. Um, having an, a, a friend that can keep you accountable accountable is a way to recognize some of those patterns and recognizing the pattern is a way to start the interruption. Exactly. And I just think that this, what's the saying like bad habits die hard. Like that's the reason why, right? Like it's because you're not replacing it with something else that meets that exact same thing that bad habit was giving you, mm -hmm. right? Like if you are so, if you're used to just like having sex when you're stressed out instead of like journaling, right? I can't, I can't even just say like, well, maybe just journal instead of sex. Because for you, you're thinking like journaling doesn't give me the same physical thing that sex is giving me when I'm distressed out about something. Right. I mean, everyone would say that. Everybody would say that. Maybe this <laughs> is the best thing. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Journaling instead of sex could totally be, I just was joking about like, a, a it could. I don't know is different. to do that shit. No. <laughs> journal instead of having sex. Uh, no, thank you. Can I shove this so. pin up my butt? <laughs> We're just the whole notebook. Um, oh my God, girl. She's been <laughs> practicing in quarantine. Girl, I have a butt plug. I don't. That was a joke. I actually do not. <laughs> it's fine um, if you do. It's fine if I do. You're right. But I don't. Um, but if you chose to do something that is quote unquote unhealthy, mm -hmm. you're choosing to drink every time you talk to your dad because he stresses you out that much. And then I'm telling you, why don't you journal those feelings down instead? But that doesn't give you the, the same, same sort of thing that drinking does. You're not going to adopt that as a coping mechanism. And yeah. I think that we have to understand as people like, that's okay right? Like, then let's find something else that does feel like the same thing. Like because, Big Buck Hunter. Yeah, I would play Buck Hunter after talking to my dad. <laughs> I fucking love Big Buck Hunter. I'm that, I mean, there are many reasons, but it's one of the reasons that I like secretly identify as a lesbian. Wow, I just learned <laughs> a lot more about you. <laughs> I love Big Buck Hunter. It's so fun. I used um, to play, um, what is it? Time Crisis? Time Cop? Something like that. It was another, like, shooter game in the arcade. You I mean, I've used video games as a coping mechanism, absolutely. See, there absolutely. we go. Um, I, think, I think that that's um, really insightful and really great about this, like, uh, law of replacement and, like, how to find the thing. And I think it takes some trial and error. I think it takes going oh, out yeah. and, and trying some new things. And I think the active part of your brain, once there's an, uh, a noticing finding something that you want to do can sometimes be a good way to um uh like in terms of like learning something or trying a new craft or engaging with something new because then sometimes your brain can learn that it's not necessarily the thing like it's not necessarily the exact hobby that i got into but it's the i'm coping by teaching myself something else you know um yeah that's um a way to engage with that for sure and it's also why <clears throat> You'll notice usually when I give you guys the homework that it's, I'm just all about like, just try it. Like, just do it in the way that makes sense for you. I'm not going to give you them some strict, you have to do it this exact way because it's the only way it's going to work. Because it's not true, right? It's all about introducing a new behavior and just seeing how you feel about it, right? Not every behavior 
hell, even if you're talking to your therapist and they're like, you should journal more. And if you've tried journaling, you're just like, I don't like that shit. Like, I just, it's not for me. Then, hey, that's okay. It's not for you. And right. you shouldn't feel bad and then have to cope with that feeling bad <laughs> with something else just because that doesn't work for you. Well, there's a maladaptive coping of guilt, right? Like, yeah. And like, that's something to not have to bring on to yourself, right? And I don't think that you and either of us are wanting to put that on people who maybe have... Um, are listening to this and are like, shit, I do that. You know, like, I think that there's something to saying and recognizing that there is freedom in recognizing, at least for me, I have found freedom in recognizing that coping mechanisms at one point were good for me. At, at yeah. some point, coping mechanisms were a, a baby blanket, <laughs> you know, like it's like a pacifier for my soul. I have a coping mechanism story to share before we end this segment. It's going to be really short. Did you got, did you know that I sucked? my thumb until I was like 16. <laughs> um, no. I had an overbite. I had to get braces in high school. Because Your teeth are perfect. <gasps> because I had braces. Before that though, girl, this mouth was fucked. Um, <laughs> Is your barbecue like, canceled? <laughs> I sucked my thumb for a while. It was a coping mechanism. Whenever I was, like, it didn't matter what it was. School, home life, family didn't matter as soon as like that anxiety stress started to like creep up thumb went in my mouth like immediately and I just thought of this because thumb in my mouth doesn't work for me at age 30 something right right? like I have to find another way to deal with that stress that isn't me just putting my thumb in my mouth especially during COVID-19 where like you know just (laughs) if you're sucking your thumb out there stop (laughs) unless you've washed your hands before so now you've like switched to sucking dick um anyways we are going to hear in a little bit from a person who is running for congress their name is albert lee we're going to talk to them a little bit about coping mechanisms and the things that they've seen in the portland community um and what he's just kind of heard um we also just want to hear a little bit about what his story is as well and i hope that it's just as enlightening for you guys as it is for us um so let's give it a listen we're almost ready to come back again Albert, welcome to QBT Podcast. We're so excited to have you. Thank you. Thank you for mu- so, so much. I really appreciate being a part of your show today. Yay. So for those of you listening, um, Albert Lee is running for Congress. Um, he's a Democrat running for Oregon CD03. Albert, tell us a little bit about what that means. Like, who are you? What are you trying to do for Portland? What are you trying to do for Oregon? We want to hear all about it. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. Um, so it has been a complete year now. I started making this run back in April of 2019. And uh, really, uh, when I started looking at this, this was about, you know, providing true citizen representation uh, for the people of the third district. We've had uh, the same um, representative for the last 24 years. And when I look at who our representative is and what has been accomplished over those 24 years, I see a lot that is lacking. Uh, now, I know that this this podcast is coming out the day after the primary, so I don't know if I'm uh, jumping for joy or crying at this point <laughs> um, when you guys hear this. But, uh, you know, for the last year, I've been – uh, making this challenge, I've been standing up because I think that a lot more voices need to be heard. Uh, and I think that a new perspective and a new vision should be made for the third district. Um, you know, when I look at 
our district. I have lived here. I first moved here in 2005 and I came back in 2015. And over the course of those 10 years, and quite frankly, over the course of the 24 years of our, uh, our uh, representative's uh, tenure, we've faced a series of crises that have been allowed to fester and grow. And I'm talking about things like our homelessness crisis, which when I first moved here in 2005, it was critical then and today mm -hmm. it's super critical. Right. We have, we, it's a humanitarian issue. We've got people living on the streets and that just should not be uh, in a place like this. Um, you know, when I first moved here in 2005, it, I was an economic migrant moving from the East Coast where I was a, a young urban professional. I worked in international trade, yet I had three, sometimes four roommates because I couldn't afford to live on my own despite having a decent uh, income because the rent was too damn high. Uh, and when we moved back here in 2015, uh, my wife and I were renters again. Uh, you know, it's, it's just the, the, the lack of affordable housing and the lack of living wages places way too many of us into the struggling class. Um, and then, you know, I can go on about a lot of the other issues that uh, just have simply not been addressed, but uh, we, we, have a, we have a climate emergency. And I know that right now everybody's focused on the COVID crisis, but our climate emergency is, is way more critical uh, than the COVID crisis. It's an existential crisis. And we need more than just lip service. We need actual uh, bold action that's going to really stop us from continuing the use of fossil fuels and to clean up this mess that we've created over the last 150 years of our industrial revolution. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, these are some of the things we see during this COVID crisis that uh, things are missing, that people are not being taken care of. We're, we're focused on making sure that the wealthy do not lose their assets. We've sunken trillions of dollars into Wall Street, but we can't take care of the people. We can't, you know, cancel rent. We can't bail out the people. We can't even give a decent uh, economics, emergency economic support to uh, our working people um, that are struggling right now. So I think that by having folks that are in the struggle, who know the struggle, um, who aren't going to take the corporate contributions, uh, I think that would affect change. That would get you uh, a more responsive government that's going to work for all of us and not just those at the top. Absolutely. And I mean, for those who don't know, I mean, you're going up against one of those white men. You're going up against uh, an incumbent who, you know, some folks are are down with. Right. But I know I was super excited to submit my ballot and vote for you. Um, and part of that has to do with what you're speaking to around not just diversifying, you know, what those places look like, but also how they feel. Right. And I we've been talking about um, coping mechanisms. And for me, especially recently, and especially post-Ferguson and post-2016, getting involved and informed politically has been one of my coping mechanisms, which has maybe not served me well all the time, right? Like, it can be a really, <laughs> um, yeah. really roller coaster of an experience. But when you think about coping mechanisms or how you might use coping mechanisms post the election day, um, what is coming to mind? Yeah, thank you. You know, Growing up, uh, first of all, I'm a sixth-generation American and an immigrant at the same time. Uh, my African-American Army dad met my Korean mom during the Vietnam War, and I was born in Korea. Um, I grew up in working-class St. Louis, actually right next door to Ferguson, in a little enclave called Moline Acres. And um, my, my, my dad's family lived in Kinloch, which was another uh, black enclave on the other side of Ferguson. Um, and growing up, uh, I really didn't fit 
really didn't fit those neat little boxes. And my sister and I, we weren't black enough. We weren't Asian enough. And folks couldn't figure us out. And that made them uncomfortable. Uh, and then in turn, it made me uncomfortable in, in my own skin. Um, and, you know, from that time when I was very little until now, I, well, at that time, I hated being different. And I, all I wanted to do was fit in. I wanted to be just like everybody else, mm-hmm. whatever that meant. And I came to realize as I grew up that, you know, really none of us fit those neat little boxes and those boxes are meant to separate and divide us. And, um, we all want to live free. We all want to thrive. We want to be secure. We want to be loved. Um, and one of the things that I, I, I came to realize is that, you know, screw what everybody else thinks. You got to do your own path. You got to go your own way and, uh, you got to take care of yourself. So, you know, through this last year, you know, we, we've heard from a lot of different people, like, it's not your turn. It's not your place. What are you doing? All of this negative, negativity. And you got to brush it off and you've got to keep pushing forward. You got to understand who you are and stand up. But yeah, there are times when it's tough and you got to, you got to do something to cope. And for me, um, I've got a, uh, a six-year-old daughter um, who's my pride and joy. She, she keeps me sane uh, when I come home regardless of how bad a day is when I see her, it just makes me light up. I've got a dog who loves to go running. We blow off steam doing that. Uh, before COVID it was the gym and now it's, you know, just trying to do yard work and, 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 uh, calisthenics to, you know, get that physical, uh, energy up, which then helps to cope for me. And then just taking a break away from things is always good as well. I really identify with you saying, you know, not fitting in, not feeling comfortable in your skin. I think it's something that, you know, as a Black man as well, I have had that exact same experiences growing up in white spaces, you know, quote unquote, diverse spaces where there weren't enough people that looked like me, but maybe looked like somebody else they considered a minority. Um, Right. And also, I mean, just just being gay, right? Like that, I think... Mm -hmm. Being a youth growing up, um, not really understanding yourself, not understanding your feelings, not understanding why you are feeling the way that you are about certain things and about your sexuality, um, you mm-hmm. know, on top of puberty making you feel sort of out of your skin, then having to reconcile yeah. with a queer identity um, definitely adds to that. So I think there's a lot of correlations and a lot of parallels there. Um, obviously not the same thing. I mean, I know that those identities are completely different for all kinds of different reasons, but I'm really happy you brought it up because I think that, you know, for myself, um, using coping, coping mechanisms, using something that can step into place when those negative thoughts are coming at me or when, um, even when it's not the thoughts, when it's the actual slurs that I've heard, when, I've, when it's the actual things that people have called me, like just walking out of my front door, um, Oh, yeah. I think that they're just really important. And I mean, I'm happy you're, that you have those things in place um, because I think that they're just, they're super important for anybody. And I know that for a lot of our listeners, I mean, they're leaning on th- this podcast they're leaning on leaders like you, Albert, to really kind of like, not just show them the solution, but to really identify with like that struggle and with, you know, some of the things that they are dealing with out there um, in the world. No, it's real. It's real. And, you know, for me, uh, it's the same thing that regardless of what identities, we all have unique identities. And there's, you know, it was funny when, when we were trying to figure out what to name our daughter, there was the whole joke, oh, we can't do anything that's going to get her a name that's going to, she's going to be teased with, right? Uh, but 
regardless of whatever you're, you're composed of, somebody's going to find something to, uh, to tease you with, to, to make light of, to try to make themselves feel better. And ultimately, it's about, not about you or what your composition is. It's more about uh, their lack of, of uh, understanding and self-awareness. You know, I think, uh, but obviously, uh, that outward uh, expression does hurt. Uh, you know, there's been so many times that I've, I've felt it. it. You can taste it. It's, it's in the air. Um, you know, when I first moved uh, to Oregon in 2005, I remember um, spending one summer uh, afternoon down, downtown on the waterfront. And I was just laying there uh, in the grass, enjoying the summer day. And some, some dude just came, walked by to me. And I said, hey. Uh, he said, hey. Uh, and at first I thought it was friendly, but he, he started asking me these weird, bizarre questions, like, where are you from? And I was like, oh, no, here we go. And, uh, yeah, I was like, from the East Coast. Oh, where, where are you really from? <laughs> you, know, you know the lines. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wasn't about to entertain it today. Uh, it, was, it was a day for me to relax. It was a day for me just to be um, comfortable and happy and healthy and home skin. I wasn't having it. And ultimately, uh, the conversation went on to the point where this dude was like, you know, you don't belong here. This is not for you. This is not a place for you. And I basically told him to buzz off, whatever. And I, I still remember this to the day. Uh, you know, I'm laying there with my dog, and he walks off, and <laughs> he turns around about 20, 30 paces away and just stares at me. Hmm. And then he keeps on going. I'm just like, what the – what the hell is this? And these kind of experiences, obviously, that was 2005, and I still remember it, 15 years later. So these things are, are stay with you, but um, I, I, I think that uh, while those things are damaging, you've got to have that strength and inter- internal strength and say, hey, you know what, screw that. This is who I am. This is what I am about. Uh, you know, regardless of what these other folks are going to be about, this is who I am, uh, and I'm going to be strong in my own self. Uh, and it's hard, you know, and especially when uh, you come from a marginalized community or from a minority community where there's not a whole lot of folks that are like you. Um, you know, there was another situation I remember on the East Coast where I um, worked um, for a small legal research company. And um, one of the things I was trying to do was expand our supports to uh, niche markets within the law firm. Uh, uh, the legal industry. So I started taking my boss to different events, including like for the National Bar Association, which is the Black Bar Association, uh, the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association, the API Bar Association. And I remember taking him to these events and uh, we were at a ballroom at a a five-star hotel and we walk in and he's nervously chattering, you know, I'm the only white guy here. And I kind of just brushed it off for a minute until he said it again. And I looked up at him and I was like, I'm not going to say his name. I was like, yo, you, you realize this is my life every day. Mm-hmm. And he, it, 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 it didn't click. It still didn't click for him until about an hour later. And he was embarrassed by himself. Well, sure. Um, he should have been. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it took him an hour. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, here, here's the thing, you know, we, we hear like dog whistle terms like native Oregonian and native Portlander. Yep. And those things are, are, you know, for me, you say native, I wanna, what language do you speak? 
which indigenous language do you speak? Then you can call yeah. yourself native. Otherwise, yeah. don't come at me with that. Yeah. Don't come at me with that. Uh, you're talking about these external factors. And when we think about coping me mechanisms, we're thinking about internal responses to them. And then also one external response, though, is to demand our lawmakers, our hope that folks that are being um, put into the more public sphere of shaping what really is the kind of context for our country will have some reckoning to the white supremacist state that Oregon is. We'll have some reckoning to the stolen land that we're on. You know what I mean? Like, I, um, yeah, it's, it's, well, it's not just Oregon. I mean, you, you look at any true. center of power within our government, federal, state, local, these are white supremacist institutions. Uh, they are focused on that, and we have mm -hmm. to break through that. And the only way we're going to do that is to change the representation. Uh, it's a perpetuation, you know. Uh, I'm tired of hearing from progressive, well-meaning white people um, uh, talking the talk, but never actually walking the walk, never actually implementing. Uh, I think that when you are are looking uh, for drastic and bold change in action, uh, it's only going to come from somebody who who who's going to who who is impacted by it, mm. you know. Mm. For for instance, you know, I've experienced homelessness. Um, our incumbent, you know, has, the, the crisis here has been a crisis for the entire generation, for the entire time that he's been in office, but That's he hasn't true. talked about it until we stepped into the ring. And I stepped in the ring, uh, all of a sudden there's a white paper on, on the homelessness situation uh, back in October, I think is when he wrote it, you know, 24 years after he got into office. And I'm just, that's not enough. You, you, we, we, we've got to take care of uh, and, and the way that it's written, you've got to, it's not a, a situation. We're talking about real life people here. We need people like you, Albert, like out there, you know, fighting the good fight um, for those of us who can't sometimes. Um, and with that, I mean, I know this is coming out a day after the election, but the message is still the same. Go out and vote people. I mean, that i'm gonna say it that is a coping mechanism in and of itself if you want to if you want to see the change if there's an external thing happening to you that you feel like you have no control over don't discount yourself you have you have some control over it maybe not absolute complete control but you have some well, it's, more, it's more than just voting you know voting is just one one part of the function absolutely um, there are so many different ways you can get activated and organized with a wide variety of groups regardless of what interest you have uh, there is an organization or governmental uh, body for which you can participate. Uh, we, here in the Portland metropolitan area, we have 1,500 different volunteer slots that you can get into, ranging from climate affairs to queer affairs to uh, houselessness to whatever uh, is, is, is your focus. There is something for you to do. Um, and um, here's the thing. We live in a democracy, but the democracy doesn't work unless people actually uh, voice their opinions, voice their, um, their thoughts and feelings. Uh, you can do that through the ballot box, but you can also do that by uh, going down to city hall, by protesting, by standing up, by waving your flag, you know? Uh, for far too long, folks who feel entitled to do so with, with, uh, uh, with big American flags and with Confederate flags and Trump flags, they feel entitled to do it. And here's the thing, we are all entitled to do this and we should. I think that we are good to end that segment there. That is a, a really great note to end on. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, thank you. So um, for our next segment, um, Albert, we wanted to invite you to take some meds with us. So um, yeah. 
we take our meds every week and this is something that um, either brings us joy or something we're um, focusing on or something that's bringing us some peace. Um, I was going to offer an example and then Albert, if you wanted to go next and then I think Shawnee was going to close us out. Does that sound all right? Sounds great. Okay, um, so Mother's Day was um, Sunday, and I think folks, our listeners know that I have um, a little bit of a complicated relationship with my mother, but I found... Um, Don't we all? <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> um, I was... I've, I keep a copy of All About Love by Bell Hooks next to my bed. It is kind of like something oh, that I... Amazing. Um, I need, Love yes. <laughs> and when I just kind of need to get smacked with some truth, I pick this book up again. Um, and, uh, as a way to kind of speak to some of the complications in my family, and then also just to offer gratitude for what, um, something my mother has offered me, which is examples of service. Um, I sent her a video of me reading a large portion of this book. Um, I decided that I just wanted to share a smaller portion. So I'm just going to do a small reading um, from Bell Hooks. This is uh, all about love um, in her chapter called Community Loving Communion. She says, women have been and are the world's great teachers about the meaning of service. We publicly honor the memory of exceptional individuals like Mother Teresa who have made a vocation of service, but there are women everyone knows whose identities the world will never publicly recognize, who serve with patience, grace, and love. All of us can learn from the example of those caring women. Earlier, I was describing my impatience with my mother. Looking at her life, I was awed by her service to others. She taught me and all her children about the value and meaning of service. As a child, I witnessed her patient care of the sick and dying. Without complaint, she gave shelter and aid to them. From her actions, I learned the value of giving freely. Remembering these actions is important. It is so easy for all of us to forget the service women give to others in everyday life, the sacrifices women make. Often, sexist thinking obscures the fact that these women make a choice to serve, that they give from the space of free will and not because of biological destiny. There are plenty of folks who are not interested in serving, who disparage service. When anyone thinks a woman who serves gives because that's what mothers or real women do, they deny her full humanity and thus fail to see the generosity inherent in her acts. There are lots of women who are not interested in service, who even look down on it. The willingness to sacrifice is a necessary dimension of loving practice and living in community. None of us can have things our way all the time. Giving up something is one way we sustain a commitment to the collective well-being. Our willingness to make sacrifices reflects our awareness of interdependency. Writing about the need to bridge the gulf between rich and poor, Martin Luther King Jr. preached, all men and women are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny, whether Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. This gulf is bridged by the sharing of resources. Every day, individuals who are not rich, but who are materially privileged, make the choice to share with others. Some of us share through conscious tithing and others through a daily practice of loving kindness, giving to those in need who we randomly encounter. Mutual giving strengthens community. And those are my meds. Dang. <laughs> that was deep, right? That's my response. Indeed. That was beautiful. Yeah. Indeed. Bell Hooks, all about love. Albert, what you got for us? Oh, I'm going to give you another piece of poetry. Uh, it's one of my favorite pieces of all time. Uh, and it, it really means it's about standing up when, when others won't. It's about uh, doing uh, the right thing despite, you know, conventional wisdom. Uh, it's about courage. 
Uh, it is Emily Dickinson, um, one of my favorite poets. Uh, it is Much Madness is Divinest Sense. It's really short. Much madness is divinest sense to a discerning eye. Much sense, the starkest madness. Tis the majority. In this, as all prevail, assent, and you are sane. Demure, you're straightway dangerous and handled with a chain. Hmm. I'm just going to breathe that in. <laughs> I did the same thing just now. <laughs> Thank you so much for offering that. Absolutely. Wow. Um, well, I'll go next. Shawnee, what you got? I have nothing yeah. to read, y'all, so... Wow. <laughs> I didn't I didn't bring any reading materials. I'm sorry, guys. I left you out of the email you on did. purpose. Yeah, you I feel left out crazy. <laughs> I didn't make the memo. Um, no, I'm going to talk about um, running. That's what's making me happy. Uh, after, you know, I've mentioned it a few times, and I'm not going to let y'all forget, <laughs> um, after the Ahmaud Arbery, you know, shooting, it's that was scary for me. And, you know, I'm a runner, I'm a jogger, I'm somebody that exercises pretty often, if you know me. Um, so that news shook me because that is, I mean, it's it's always, it could have been me. Um, this is probably the closest I've felt like, well, dang, this is something I do every other day, right? I mean, aside from sleeping in my bed where apparently you can also get shot. So, um, I don't know. Running is still making me happy because fuck y'all. <laughs> like you're not still in my joy. <laughs> I'm still going running. I'm going to still be out here exercising. You're not going to take that away from me. I refuse to, to let go of something that definitely keeps my mental health in check. Definitely keeps um, my mind right. Um, it makes me feel good. I refuse to get rid of that out of fear. So um, I'm still out here running. You can catch me in these Portland streets. <laughs> Hell yeah, babe. Uh, fuck. Yes. Yes. Keep running. Yes. Cool. Well, um, Albert Lee, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. We really appreciate it. Um, you shared some amazing things that I hope our listeners, you know, took some nuggets of wisdom away, or at least took something out of this that they can apply and use in their own life, whether that is organizing, whether it's voting, whether it's just taking a closer examination at, uh, what is going on in our various locations around this country you know i think that there's always a way to get involved and there's always a way to make the change that you want to see in this world um and that's what this podcast is about as well we want to encourage that and that's what we're hoping this is doing so thanks so much for being here this was this was an absolute pleasure no thank you i really appreciate it i yeah. really do thank you so much all right so it's homework time everybody's favorite time of the podcast um Yay. Yay! So take note of this. This is not going to be a journal exercise because I like to mix it up. You know, we don't always have to be writing. We don't always have to be meditating. We're going to do something else, but it's still meditating. Um, here's what the homework is. Get your pen and paper, write it down real quick and make sure you do it. Um, we're going to think and we're going to meditate <clears throat> on coping mechanisms. And I want 
you all to identify one coping mechanism that you'd like to change. I don't want to label it as toxic or unhealthy. We just had a whole discussion about putting those sort of definitions and parameters on something. It's based on a pattern. It's based on your own specific circumstance and situation. So what we're going to do is just think about a coping mechanism that we'd like to change. Whether it's working for you or not, we're just going to meditate on that. Um, and then we're going to take it a little bit further and we're going to think about what you want to replace it with. Because the first step to change is not just bringing awareness around it, but it's also identifying the thing that needs to be changed. And then just thinking about it and seeing, kind of visualizing what that change could look like and what it could be, whether it be scary or not, right? And the more that you can sort of sit with that, the easier it gets to make that change. So. You know, you know us, we're not gonna, we're not putting the hammer down on you. Nobody's demanding you change the coping mechanism now. All we're asking for is take a few moments to just think about something you're using that you'd like to change, um, something you're using to deal with stressors, whether they be internal or external that you'd like to change. Um, and then just think what you would maybe wanna replace it with. Um, because like that example I gave earlier, you have to replace it with something. You can't just take it away. So um, let's meditate on that this week and let us know what you did. As always, um, share your homework with us. Share with us what's making you happy. And you can also just write in or call in to just share in general. You can always do that at qbtpodcast at gmail.com or you can leave us a voicemail at 971-220-8874. So let us know at qbtpodcast at gmail.com um, or leave us a voicemail at 971 971- Two two zero eight eight seven four. Thank you, Shawnee. And feel free to follow us at QBT Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Don't forget to subscribe and share. We are deeply grateful for our supporters so far. Um, we've gotten some really, Shawnee and I, we like text cried over a DM we got last <laughs> night and we have a beautiful couple reviews on our podcast. Um, those make us feel good. They bring other folks into the podcast. So five-star reviews. Yeah. We love them. Write reviews, um, send us DMs. We, we absolutely want to hear from y'all. So keep talking to us. This is again, not, not just our podcast. It's yours too. It's ours. Yeah. Um, thank you to Marquis and Shanti Darling for letting us use their music. And thank you to Allie Kiltz for helping us with editing. Listen to her podcast, Trace Material, about the history and future of hemp. You ready to get the fuck out of here? I'm out. I'm ready to go. Bye. Trying to talk slick all up in my ear and shit. Ha, ha, ha.